Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I am Elizabeth. Super excited to have you here today. This week we are doing a runner Q and A. Uh, since I've had some questions that I mean, I get I get the, my whole my whole thing is answering questions, right? And I like to kind of earmark, flag some questions that I get and think, oh, this might be good for the podcast. And so I've collected a few questions that I think would be good for the podcast, and we're going to answer them today. Before we get started cannot believe that fall is basically here. Fall races are right around the corner. And if you need help setting up your race day plan, I now offer 45 minute race prep coaching consult calls. Say that eight times fast. (laughs) If you are looking to have a coach, me, review your race day plan, help you set up your pacing strategy, figure out if your goals are accurate, what you can, should, might need to be doing differently for race day, you can book those calls now specifically for race prep. So they are a subset of a coaching consult call where yes, you can turn any coaching consult call into a race prep call, but this 45 minute race prep coaching call is specifically for helping you set up your race day plan for success. So this is ideal for runners who are self-coached, who are not working with a coach one-on-one. Like if you're already working with a coach, they should be helping you set up your race day strategy. But if you're like, hey, I've spent three, four, five months training for my race. I'm feeling really confident, but you know, I really love somebody to take a look at what I'm trying to accomplish on race day especially if you are running one of the big races that requires a lot of logistics in the morning. You're getting up at three o'clock in the morning to take a ferry to Staten Island. You're getting up at four o'clock in the morning to take a bus into downtown Chicago. One of those races, you can book those calls with me, Coach Elizabeth, on my website, runexplained.co slash coaching consult or via the Instagram link in my bio. Cannot believe we're already talking about fall race day prep, but here we are. All right, let's get to our questions for this week. Now, this first question I love because I've actually been looking into this product a little bit. I think it's really interesting. Uh, This question is about a new fuel product. And the question is, (laughs) what's the deal with these targeted ads for the menthol gel? Does it do anything? Should I try it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So congratulations to the very robust ad department who is targeting runners correctly for this type of product. I think what this runner is referring to is there is a a company, a fuel company called Never Second, and they have a new product called the Ice Energy Gel. And it is an energy, it's a gel, right? Like a running fuel, a gel that is menthol flavored or menthol and what's the other, uh, it's not just menthol here menthol cool citrus so it's uh, citrusy and kind of minty and so the premise of this gel is that because menthol is cooling having that cooling effect might be beneficial to runners who are trying to perform well in the heat kind of cool right and so here's the thing my first advice to anybody who comes to me with a question about a specific type of fuel or hydration product or whatever it is is always like try it if you're curious try it. You might love it. 
You might hate it, but you're not going to know until you personally try it. But there is some interesting research when it comes to menthol in you being used in this way. Uh, so let's talk about it. So let's back up a little bit and talk about running in the heat and exogenous cooling strategies. Uh, so your body needs to keep itself within a very narrowly defined temperature window or else bad things happen like death. Uh, so your body kind of at all costs will do whatever it can in order to try and keep your core temperature in that narrow range. Now, this, this range is generally about 97 to 99 degrees Fahrenheit, or about 36 to 37 degrees Celsius. Now, one of the things that happens when we run is that our, and, and the harder that we run, the more, the greater this, this happens, is that your muscles create or use energy to propel you forward, but they also create energy that is thermal in nature as in heat so a lot of the energy that your body creates is actually in the form of heat which is one of the reasons that when you run your core body temperature does rise and that's also one of the reasons why you sweat to combat that increase in core temperature and essentially thermoregulate now when you are running in the heat this becomes even harder for your body to do. I think we've all been in conditions where you walk outside and stand there and start sweating. This is because your body is reacting to the conditions of like, hey, if I don't start to cool myself off here, uh, we're going to be in trouble. Because if your core body temperature rises too high, it can become dangerous or fatal. If you've ever watched one of those network dramas that takes place in a hospital, at some point at, in some episode, somebody has a fever that requires cooling blankets. Somebody freaks out and tries to get them to an ice bath, right? Because when your body temperature rises too high, it can kill you. Now, if you combine hard exercise, right, with high temperatures, especially high humidity, and, and dehydration, that's like the trifecta of uh-oh. And so your body exists to keep itself alive, to keep you alive. And there are going to be a lot of fail-safe mechanisms that your body is going to throw in the attempt to keep you safe. And one of those things that happens when we run in the heat, and especially the high humidity, it is going to, it's going to make everything feel harder, and it's going to force you to run more slowly because think about it this way if you had if you went out and ran as hard and fast in 100 degrees as you did in 40 degrees fahrenheit you would be very very hard for your body to thermoregulate safely and effectively in the 100 degree heat and the chances of you becoming dangerously hot are much greater, right? So that's one of the reasons, and this is, I'm, like, I'm vastly oversimplifying this, but the whole point of this is that one of the reasons that it, you find it more challenging to run in hot conditions, especially hot and humid conditions, is because of your body's at all cost attempt to maintain this window of core temperature regulation. So yes, in hotter conditions, right, it may rise, uh, you know, a couple degrees, generally speaking, what we consider kind of that dangerous cutoff to be about 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Above that, it's real bad. <laughs> so 
The whole point of this and why I explain this in the context of talking about a menthol performance gel is because there are a lot of strategies you can implement in order to improve your body's ability to regulate your core temperature, including exogenous methods of cooling, right? So yes, your body's endogenous, right? Built in from within um, method of thermoregulation is primarily sweating. There's a reason that humans are mostly hairless and have sweat glands covering every inch of our bodies because we evolved to sweat in order to thermoregulate, probably during exercise, probably during long distance runs, right? It's very cool to read about the evolution of humanity. But uh, the thing is, is that in certain conditions, that's not enough, especially if it's very humid and your sweat can't evaporate. Now, there are other things too, where uh, your body will dilate the vessels close to your um, skin, surface of your skin, and kind of expose that hot blood to as much of the surface kind of of your underside of your skin as possible. This is like grossly <laughs> oversimplified. But in the attempt to exchange heat with the air, right? So you're, if you're, if the, uh, the air can, if your skin can cool off, right? Then the blood underneath your skin or in your skin can also cool off. And that's a cooling effect. So again, sweating is the main thing, but you can also use exogenous outside things to help cool you yourself off. The most obvious one, of course, is ice or cold water. So you you may have run a race recently, especially as our climate change conditions become more severe, where they were handing out ice or frozen sponges at aid stations. This is becoming more common. You may have also seen this in some recent uh, um, elite championships, right? I'm thinking about when they ran the marathon and the World Athletic Championships in Doha a couple years ago. They had to run it at midnight because it was the coolest part of the day and it was still like 105 degrees. They had ice available basically all along the course. And even then, some athletes needed to drop out due to heat exhaustion. So Again, ice can help, right? That and uh, the exogenous cooling, like you can physically attempt to cool yourself off by putting ice against your skin, right? Down the back of your neck, down your bra, down your shirt, on your head, and that can help. So the whole premise of the menthol gel is, right? Because we know, yeah, it's not necessarily convenient to have ice readily available on different parts of a course, uh, especially if it's a long one, right? So I think the premise here, of course, is that, hey, can we develop a gel that provides some sort of cooling effect that could improve performance or kind of, you know, manipulate core body temperature or in some capacity to help the runner, one, feel more comfortable because it's not really, doesn't feel good to feel like you are melting. And two, again, to improve performance, right? Can menthol do that? Well, let's let's take a look what the research says. So there are three studies that I found looking at menthol gels in sport performance, and uh, in the in very recent ones too. So one is published in 2020. There was one published in 2022, and then one that was published very recently, just this year. So the first two studies looked at the perception of menthol like did you perceive a cooling effect and kind of to what degree and the third study the most recent one looked at if there was a difference in performance for uh, athletes who took the cooling gel versus the non non-cooling gel so 
the studies that looked at the perception of the cooling sensation, right? So menthol very specifically is different from a minty flavor. Menthol specifically triggers a cooling sensation. So this is different from mint. We're like, oh, something's minty versus something that's men has menthol in it. You're like, ooh, that provides that's a cooling sensation. You can think of it as the opposite of something that's spicy, right? You're like, oh, that's really spicy. It's hot. Menthol is the opposite of that. Like, oh, that's really cold. It also has some analgesic properties, kind of the uh, numbing properties um, or pain relieving properties. But menthol is a, a part of what somebody might consider to be minty, although menthol is different from something that is minty. In the grand scheme of mint, uh, menthol is available or uh, present in higher quantities in peppermint versus something like spearmint. So if you're like super into your mints, know that. Um, but so they're looking specifically not as does something that is mint flavored provide XYZ difference or benefit, but does menthol specifically with its ability to trigger cold sensitive receptors, does that provide the same or a similar cooling benefit as actual some, actually something that's cold. This is super cool stuff, right? Because what we do know is that there are certain things you can do in and to your body that can trick your brain into acting as if something has actually happened when it hasn't. So the first two studies looked at very similar things. Again, that perception of cooling. So basically the kind of the hypothesis was, you know, we think that an athlete will perceive a cooling effect, but we don't know that for sure. Just because menthol does provide a cooling effect in other places, does that translate to if you were to ingest a gel that has menthol in it, would you also perceive a cooling effect? So these two studies looked at this. So the first study was um, development of a quote unquote cooling menthol energy gel for endurance athletes, effective menthol concentration on acceptability and preferences. And this was published in the International Journal of Sport Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism in 2020. And what they did in this study was they didn't just like give athletes menthol and say like, hey, do you find that this has a cooling effect? What they actually did was they developed several different types of an energy gel, one with a placebo. So it was a mint flavor, but contained no menthol at all. So like, again, talk about mint versus menthol. So this was the placebo, the control was simply mint flavored. They had a low concentration menthol gel. So 0.1% concentration of menthol. And then they had a high version, high concentration of menthol version is 0.5% concentration of menthol. And of course it's an energy gel, right? So it also has to have, you know, the texture and it has to have carbohydrates in it. And so they gave the different gels to these athletes and <laughs> were like, you know, went through the whole process, randomized crossover, double blind placebo controlled design, which is a pretty phenomenal, excellent uh, design for a, an experiment, a study like this. And what they found is that Yes, the menthol gels successfully delivered a cooling sensation with a significantly greater response for the high dose compared to the low dose. And again, compared to the control, which had no menthol and that low dose compared uh, had a, a greater cooling effect than the control, right? So yes, the menthol did provide a cooling sensation compared to just a minty flavor. Um, but we have to also keep in mind that menthol can be irritating at higher concentrations. So more is not always better. They actually found in the study, the recommendation was that the low dose menthol 
was recommended to maximize the experience. So the dose response, and it wasn't overpowering. It doesn't seem like it caused uh, some other you know adverse reactions, right? So like, yeah, okay, we did this thing. We developed these gels. Yeah, it seems like menthol does provide this cooling effect. Athletes are reporting, I'm receiving a cooling sensation, and it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. I feel like it's cooling me off. Because the perception of this also matters because you have actual core temperature, right? And then you have perception of, of how things feel. And there's a lot we can do to manipulate perception of certain things, even if the actual thing is not necessarily being changed. Now, you can't obviously do that with other things, right? You can't have a core temperature of 106, manipulate your body into thinking that it's cooler than that, right? That's not going to happen. But when we are playing in that safe, elevated, but still safe range, there are some some things you can do to improve your uh, tolerance to those conditions, improve your ability, you know, your comfort level, those conditions, and reduce your kind of suffering factor, (laughs) right? And that's where something like this cooling gel could be helpful. Now, this second study took this premise and expanded on it. This is a study that was published in 2022 in the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, and it is entitled Athlete Perceptions of Flavored Menthol-Enhanced Energy Gels Ingested Prior to Endurance Exercise in the Heat. So the first study, and this is the cool thing about research, right? So the first study just looked at the gels and like, do they even provide a cooling sensation? And the answer was like, yeah, looks like they do. The next thing is like, all right, do they provide an, <laughs> do they help if we're going to then run in the heat? So this study looked at uh, four different concentrations, 0.1, 0.3, 0. 0.5, and 0. 0.7 of menthol concentration or that non-menthol flavor match, placebo, the control, on separate occasions before outdoor exercise. So the gels were rated by the participants for cooling sensation, irritation, flavor, and overall experience on a 100-point sensory and hedonic labeled magnitude scale. Oh my goodness, the qualitative stuff. That's really hard to do in a research environment. But hey, they're like, all right, so we want to look at this, not just, you know, kind of like, does it provide a cooling sensation, but like, does it provide a cooling sensation in the heat? And do you like it? And are there any issues at higher doses? So the results from this study showed, yeah, all of the menthol gels, delivered a greater cooling sensation compared to the minty control. And obviously the higher the menthol concentration, the greater the cooling sensation, but at a higher risk of irritation, right? Because ingesting high levels of menthol, just like high levels of capsaicin, right? The high spice, high cooling effect, it's not going to be for everybody and it can cause irritation in some for some people. So Yes, again, we're like, yeah, menthol gel has delivered a significantly longer cooling sensation versus that minty control. But generally speaking, the duration of that uh, menthol coolness didn't seem to matter depending on what the concentration was. Like the, the cooling sensation lasted for basically the same amount of time, irrespective of the concentration of the menthol. So this study recommended the 0.5% concentration recommended to maximize the cooling sensation and minimizing irritation. So again, interesting, but we're still seeing, yeah, okay, seems to be doing something. They're perceiving a benefit. You know, people are tolerating it really well, not at necessarily the highest doses, but it does seem worse. We might be onto something, people, right? All right. Now this next study, the third study, this was published in July of this year in the journal Nutrients. And this article is entitled 
A menthol enhanced quote unquote cooling energy gel does not influence laboratory time trial performance in trained runners. Ooh, interesting. Okay, so now we've gone from, yep, menthol does provide that cooling sensation. Yep, menthol does provide that cooling sensation before when it's ingested during, you know, hot weather exercise. But this this study looked at, yeah, but does it improve your performance? Does it make you faster? Mm, we're not sure about that yet. In this study, they say menthol has been identified as a non-thermal sensory cooling strategy for athletes when ingested or mouth rinsed during exercise in hot environments. So they're identifying, yeah, absolutely, like it does provide a cooling sensation. And so they go on to say, therefore, sports nutrition products delivering a controlled concentration of menthol could be beneficial for athletes exercising in the heat. We sought to test the performance and perceptual outcomes of a novel, meaning new, menthol energy gel during treadmill running in the heat. And in the heat here, they defined that as 33 degrees Celsius at 49% relative humidity. So it's about 91 degrees Fahrenheit. And again, 49% humidity. So that's... It's, you know, that's definitely not what I would consider humid, right? And obviously we know we have more issues uh, in performing in the heat when the humidity is very high. But yeah, I think we can all agree that that is considered like, yep, that's definitely running in the heat. So what did this study find? Now, before I talk about this, I want to go on a little bit of a tangent about what research finds and what your experience might be. Because you may have heard this, the plural of anecdote is not data. As in, you may have a personal experience that is yours and is valid and something that you believe, right? If you're saying, but I, when I use menthol gels, let's say I use them and I, if I, when I use them in the heat, I perform better than when I use regular gels in the heat, right? And you say, how can this research be true? Because my experience is different, right? Well, that's one of the reasons that we do research and we do research over and over and over and over and over and over again in slightly different ways every single time to to try to understand the fullest picture possible for looking at these different things. Because it is incredibly unlikely that everybody who participates in research, right, is gonna have the exact same experience. It's just not gonna happen. And you may personally believe and find a benefit in your performance and your perception of effort when using a cooling gel or whatever the thing is, right? Even if research indicates it might not be, I want to say true, I'm not going to say true or false, it's not really what we talk about when it comes to research, even if research indicates that that might not be the finding that is going to apply to the majority of people. Okay, so I think it's very, very, very important that when we talk about what the research says, it's important to acknowledge that your personal experience may be different than what the research has indicated, but also that just because your personal experience is different doesn't mean the research findings are wrong. Because, right, let's take, say we take a thousand people and we survey them on, you know, their preferences on fruit flavors. I don't know, right? And we say, well, the majority of people have indicated that their favorite flavor is watermelon. And you say, that's BS. My favorite flavor is orange, <laughs> right? Okay, that both things are true, right? Research indicates that the it by most people by and large, in a population, the favorite flavor tends to be watermelon, and your personal favorite flavor can also be orange. I know it's tough, and it's it gets very tricky when we talk about 
human physiology and biology because there are so many variables that it's simply impossible to control for all of them. That's why doing research on people is so messy and time consuming, not literally messy, not hopefully not actually messy, but it's so complicated and time consuming to try to get as correctly as done as possible. So because what I'm about to tell you, right? I don't, if you still want to try this gel, I want you to go ahead and try it. I'm actually interested in trying this gel, right? Even though the research says right now that it may not actually make you faster. I don't care. I don't really like feeling like I'm melting when I'm running outdoors. And if this can change my perception of that, sure, I'll absolutely try that. But here's what this most recent study found. So again, we're talking about, right, so we did the first study on like, does it even provide a cooling effect? Yes, it does. Okay, does it provide a cooling a sensation? when done, you know, when in the heat. Yes, it absolutely does. Okay. Does that cooling sensation translate to performance benefits in running in the heat? So what they did was they took, they took runners, took 14 trained runners and which may not sound like a lot and it's not. Um, but you tend to find studies like this done with not that many runners. I mean, if you get like 60 runners in a study like this, like it's a ton of people. So the whole study design of how you choose your sample size is like something that I will leave to a professional (laughs) researcher statistician to explain. But broadly speaking, just because they only had 14 runners in the study does not mean that the findings weren't valid. Right. So just keep that in mind. What they had them do. This is why reading research is really interesting because you actually get to figure out, okay, but like, what did you do? They had uh, one energy gel, one menthol gel. So, right. So we have our kind of like before they had a bunch of different types of concentrations. This one, they had one different menthol enhancing energy gel at that 0.5 concentration, or they had that placebo, right? So the minty with no menthol. And they had the participants ingest a gel five minutes before and at the minute 20 and minute 40 of 40 minutes of treadmill running at 60% of VO2 max. So easy effort for the vast majority of people running at 60% of their VO2 max is firmly in their easy zone. It's basically like a 40 minute warm up, And then, and then they had them do a 20 minute self-paced time trial on the treadmill. <laughs> the total distance, vertical distance, Perceptual measures, thermal comfort, thermal sensation, rating of perceived exertion and affect, and cognitive performance via computerized neurocognitive assessment were measured. No difference between 20-minute self-paced time trial total distance or any perceptual measures was observed. Right, so what they're saying is that we didn't see a difference in time trial performance between the group that did the control gel, so minty no menthol, or did the menthol in these hot conditions on the treadmill. So the researchers have said, these results suggest that a menthol energy gel is not superior to non-menthol gel in terms of performance or perception during treadmill running in the heat. However, and this is me saying this, the coolest thing about research is that you do want to have basically more questions than answers (laughs) uh, at the end of it. They then say more research is needed to confirm whether these findings translate to ecologically valid settings, including outdoor exercise and ambient heat and during competition. Because one of the hardest things, 
this is me again. One of the hardest things about designing research and, and performing research, conducting research and analyzing your results is controlling, like I said, for all the variables because you can't, right? So yes, okay, we all know, anybody who's run on a treadmill knows that that perception of treadmill effort and the paces that you run on a treadmill and your ability to maintain certain paces for a certain duration it's different from when you're outside and it's different from when you're outside running in a race versus just running outside. So yeah, the next step for this research be like, okay, but does this help in a competitive environment, right? Are there possibly benefits to doing this in outside? So To answer your original question, runner, about what's the deal with all these targeted ads, (laughs) what am I getting? Is this even doing anything? It's a really cool idea. And there may be some research to suggest that it could be helpful for some runners to reduce this, to improve their ability to tolerate heat because it provides that cooling effect. Whether or not it translates to improved performance has yet to be seen, but if this is something that you are curious about, I absolutely encourage you to buy a couple and see if you like them. This next question I get uh, a lot of. Unfortunately, certain times of the year we go back to school and our kids are back to school picking up every germ under the sun, especially if they're little, and bringing them back home and infecting you over and over and over and over again. And so the the kind of amalgamation of the question is, look, I know I'm not supposed to run when I'm sick, but I'm basically in back-to-back sickness right now because my kids keep bringing home illness. What should I do about this? Hey, look, like I get it. It sucks. It really sucks. But no, you still should not do a bunch of running when you're sick. And if that means missing significant parts of your training, that falls under the And sometimes life happens part of this whole process. There is no such thing as a perfect training cycle because sometimes life happens. And sometimes life happens in the form of your kid getting you sick every week for four weeks in a row or whatever it is, right? So as much as I know that it's disappointing and crappy to have that have you be sick right they're sick it sucks you're then you get sick that also sucks but to be sick kind of consistently for a while just kind of like as soon as you get over one cold you get another one um there's really nothing you can do about that when it comes to like you still shouldn't run through it actually because what is your body doing when it's sick it is fighting off an attack it is very very busy and stressed, trying to prevent you from getting more sick, from actively fighting off the invaders that are in your system. If you want to learn more about running and your immune system and exercise, et cetera, et cetera, you can listen to my episode with Dr. Yasmin Moseni earlier from this year. I think it was episode 19, running in your immune system. may not be episode 19, season three, first half of the year. We do talk about why you shouldn't run when you're sick, why you shouldn't exercise when you're sick. Now, of course, there is a spectrum. We can talk about that too. But here's the thing. Like, I get that it sucks, but that doesn't give you an excuse to do things that are going to make it worse. And you might just need to kind of take the L, as it were, for this season and adjust your goals, adjust your training. This is when working with a coach is very, very, very helpful 
for our very busy runners out there, especially ones who have kids who keep getting them sick constantly or for whatever reason you want to work with a coach. But this is a really, really, really good reason to work with a coach because a coach can help you understand what is appropriate, when to stop, when to cut back, when to push forward, right? Monitor your symptoms, help you make the best, most informed decision possible. Because if you are so anxious about missing a run because you keep getting sick that you then make really bad decisions like running when you can barely breathe for coughing, running when you have a fever, running if you have severe gastrointestinal uh, symptoms, right? Like if you run when you're sick, you're not going to make things better. And you're probably going to prolong your recovery even further because your body is now actively fighting off the invaders and is like, oh my God, what did you just do? We just went for an hour and we did speed work. What is this? Because you're so overly focused on that race day. And I get it, right? You set this goal and you want to achieve it. And I totally understand that. But nothing, nothing, nothing should come at the expense of your overall health and well-being. It is not good or impressive that you are pushing through on days when you should be home not running, not exercising. Again, does it suck to have to pivot or let go of certain goals that you have set for yourself? It absolutely does. But as I tell all my parent clients, right, this is a phase. They're not going to keep bringing those sicknesses home forever. At some point, their immune systems will get better. (laughs) This doesn't happen forever. And it's hopefully only one part of the year, right? So as much as it does suck, the best thing you can do is take care of yourself. And that is going to mean, yeah, cutting back on your training if you find yourself continually getting sick from the little ones, the little germ factories that you love so much and live in your home. Now, what are the general recommendations for like when when to, you know, go out, when to stay in, when to cut back, all that? So um, hard no's, hard stops, hard like don't even put your shoes on, don't even think about it, don't even pretend to think about it, is if you have a fever, like that's a hard stop. Right. Absolutely not. And for the runners I work with one on one, I like to see them be fever free for at least two days before we get back out for another run. Yes, I am very much a pound, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure kind of person. Fever. Absolutely not. You've tested positive for covid, even if you do not have any symptoms. That is a hard no. (laughs) Just no. Um, if you have a, what we call below the neck symptoms, right? So if you have that kind of, you know, big, obviously the big stuff, right? You have any sort of like pneumonia, that big, deep, phlegmy cough. If you, if you are struggling to breathe, if you have like a bad cold, right? If you are struggling to breathe through your nose, like if you wouldn't send your kid to school, you shouldn't go for a run. Okay. So these are all things like, hard stop. Absolutely. Don't even think about getting out the door. And then again, I would probably give yourself a couple days to actually fully recover before you start running again, because you don't want to prolong your recovery even further because you've returned too soon. And your body's like, I can't deal with this. Now I have fewer resources to deal with getting better. And now we're going to kind of exist in this like nether world for a while. And you're like not getting better, but you're not getting worse. And you kind of feel crappy. We don't want that. It's always better, in my opinion, to really focus on getting as healthy as you can be before you start running again. We get a little gray area. Think about the stoplight, right? So red light, do not go. If you are having fever, COVID, right? The phlegmy cough, can't breathe through your nose, terrible headache, migraine, absolutely not, right? Stay home. 
yellow with caution, right? This is when if you are going to go for a run, absolutely no speed work, like no workouts, not at all, easy effort only. And you may want to shorten your run as well, depending on how you're feeling. If you have very mild symptoms, right? So that kind of like maybe the tail end of a, a, a sickness, like kind of that dry residual cough, like it's just there, like it's totally, you're totally fine. You're fine. But like you kind of have that weird residual cough, you know, kind of have that mild, like some post-nasal drip and you're kind of stuffy, but like, you know, actually getting out the door for a couple of minutes kind of makes you feel better. Like it's mild. It's an inconvenience. Sure. But you know, you can still go about your day and actually going for a run or exercising might make you feel a little bit better, right? Getting out there for 30, 45 minutes, super easy effort. You might feel a bit better, but anything worse than that, you need to stay home. And yeah, I get it. I get it. How much it sucks to have to miss or skip so much of your training, but there is no alternative. Like you can't, train through severe illness and expect good things to happen. So if you do need to change your goals, if you need to modify what your race distance is going to be, that is something that is the, hey, and life threw me a curveball this season. But the great thing about running is that you always get to try again. And there's always another season that you get to try again, hopefully one that isn't derailed by multiple sicknesses. So that is where I come down as a coach on if you find yourself in the season of, of life where your kid's getting you sick every week and how you should adjust your training, how you should adjust your goals. Um, and if you are in doubt or need help with this, this is when working with a coach like me or a member of my coaching team is extraordinarily helpful to help make sure that you're making the best decision possible rather than trying to do something that you shouldn't be doing and making things worse. This next question actually comes from uh, group coaching, our group coaching right now, but something that I've definitely helped other runners work through, and that is dealing with severe race day anxiety. Race day anxiety that shows up weeks before race day, interferes with your ability to sleep and eat, results in you feeling on race morning like you're about to implode or explode, like you're barely functioning. Yeah definitely can be debilitating and impact your performance. Some degree of race day anxiety, those kind of race day nerves is normal and in some cases optimal. You do want to be engaged and like kind of fired up and psyched for what you're about to do. But everybody has this zone of optimal functioning when it comes to being either over or under stimulated. And obviously anything that is this severe race day anxiety that starts well before race day and interferes with kind of your function of daily living, that is a really uncomfortable place to be. Again, not to mention the fact that it interferes with how you're going to perform on race day. So what are some ways that we can help address this? So I do know for my runners who house, who struggle with severe race and race-related anxiety, they tend to avoid racing because of it. Um, there's one runner in our group coaching right now who has essentially stopped racing for years because of this debilitating race anxiety. But not everybody wants to stop racing. Not everybody is interested in stopping racing, right? Some people are like, yeah, but I still love to race. I still want to race. I still want to have this experience and test myself and push myself. Um, so what can I do to help deal with this race day anxiety? Now, look, I am not a mental health clinician, right? I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. And if you are dealing with 
this kind of debilitating race day anxiety, it might be helpful to talk to a mental health practitioner, a sports psychologist, or a sport performance coach, right? Getting some outside help if it's really this bad is never a bad idea. Now, if that's not something that is interesting to you or in your budget, there are ways you can help desensitize yourself to the race day anxiety experience. And that is by racing. Yeah, I know. Um, But the key to this in confronting your race day anxiety is to participate in a lot of races that have absolutely zero stakes, zero consequences. Local 5Ks are great for this. Because if you have a goal race that is months or more than months ahead in the future that you are hoping to prepare for so that you can handle your race day morning without having a total meltdown, right? We are going to want to help desensitize you to that race day process as soon as, you know, starting now. So love, love, love local races for, and it doesn't have to be a 5K, a 10K, whatever, local 8K, I don't care. It is important to put yourself into this environment to allow you safely, right, in a way that's going to be still okay for your mental well-being, right? It's not going to be harmful for you, um, but it is going to basically allow you to confront and deal with these symptoms of anxiety and prove to yourself that nothing bad is going to happen. Because what is anxiety? Anxiety is our body's, our mind's response to a perceived threat. Now, this can be a threat to our physical well-being, a threat to our emotional well-being, a threat to our psychological well-being, and not all anxiety is bad. And I think in this day and age, when we talk about having anxiety, like, look, anxiety developed as a very real evolutionary skill that kept us alive. I know I've talked about like evolutionary skills a lot in this episode, but it's true. We evolved, our bodies evolved, our minds evolved to keep us alive. And the reason that anxiety is a problem in situations where it doesn't belong is is because the anxiety is over that perceived threat that doesn't exist, right? Or that that's an outsized response. Because yes, on race day, there are a couple threats, quote unquote, to our well-being that can trigger this anxiety, right? So one, we kind of have the threat to our, um, our physical well-being, right? Racing can hurt. Racing can be very hard. Racing can be very uncomfortable. Racing can push you to the limit, right? It can be very, very hard to run races, right? That like, yeah, you're running at your limit for 15, 20, 30 minutes, two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours, right? It is you are intentionally knowing like I'm setting myself up to suffer for this amount of time, right? So that is a, a threat to our physical well-being, right? And we also have threats to our psychological well-being, the threat to our safety of ego, a threat to kind of our anxiety of of um, a threat to our understanding of who we are, who we hope to be, especially if you have big goals for race day, right? And this perceived threat is the kind of battle going on in your head between the I want to achieve this goal, and if I don't achieve this goal, I will be a failure, and that is the threat to my sense of self and well-being and accomplishment. More often than not, when I go through talking through with my athletes about race day anxiety, it has to do a lot with um, having anxiety over the things that they can't control, like the weather, or having an outsized degree of anxiety about the things they can control. 
right? Like I am terrified I'm going to forget my gels. Okay, so let's talk through what if you do forget your gels? What if the worst happens? What would you do if you showed up on the start line and realized, oh my God, I forgot my gels, right? It's incredibly unlikely that it's going to happen, especially if it's something that you were acutely anxious about. But talking through that, what would you do, right? Would you ask people around you if they had any extra gels? Would you maybe, you know, if you arrived at the start line with time to spare, maybe there are like um, many regular races have kind of kiosks, uh, kind of a race morning expo available to you. Are there gels you can buy? Are there gels on the course? Is there something you can do? Can you make up the difference in, you know, with drinking, uh, do they have Gatorade on the course? Like whatever it is like, okay, so if this is your worst case scenario, let's talk through how you would deal with that. Right. Similarly, I, you know, I'm terrified I'm not going to be able to hold my pace. All right. Let's talk through that. Yeah. Okay. So let's say you're running and you can't hold the pace. What, what, what's the, what's the worst that could happen? Right. How maybe you're five seconds off, 10 seconds off. Maybe it's just not your day. All right. Let's talk through that. What will you do? Right. Will you kind of try to ignore the pace and go off effort? Right. Are you going to take walk breaks if you need them? Right. Because a lot of times when we have these incredibly anxious responses to things like race day, um, it can be helpful to go through the exercise of really going step by step about, all right, let's say literally these things that I'm terrified of happening, let's say they happen. What will I do? Because a lot of times the anxiety thrives off of the fear of what might happen or what could happen or like, I don't know, what if this happens? Well, what if it does happen? Let's talk through it. Let's go step by step and figure out what if this does happen? How will we respond? Because there is so much about racing that is already about doing a bit of a trust fall, right? Because when you step up to the start line on for most races, you're hoping to do something that maybe you've never done before, right? At minimum, you're hoping to just do a really good job, whatever that means for you. And so having this race day anxiety well, is very normal. But again, one of the best things you can do in order to start confronting this race day anxiety in the run up to hoping to make your A race, your goal race day experience more manageable is to desensitize yourself to the process, right? So this is when I do recommend, yeah, sign up for a bunch of local races, even if you don't necessarily race them, like you don't have to go race every single weekend. If you are in a country that offers park run, right? That weekly Saturday 5k, go do, go do a bunch of park runs. You don't necessarily have to race every single one, but Go to one every week if you have to. Get Start like desensitizing yourself to this race day anxiety and just show that you're about, hey, look, nothing's bad is going to happen. Nothing bad is going to happen. Nothing bad is going to happen. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. There are also things you can do to help mitigate or mediate acute symptoms of anxiety. Uh, there are very helpful things like square breathing. I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. Square breathing, where you breathe in for a count, hold for that same count, breathe out for a count, hold for a count. And so you basically are breathing the square. Helps when you breathe through your nose because it activates your parasympathetic nervous system, which has that rest and digest kind of calms you down response. Um, I remember uh, before I ran 
um, the Hartford Marathon. This is what in 2021, I think. Um, I remember being in this little pre-race area paid for like the pre-race perks where you got access to like a bathroom. Like I forget how much, like 50 bucks, but you got a place to go and like get rid of, you know, like little bag check. And there were, it was inside one of the downtown buildings and, um, like real bathrooms, not porta potties. It was awesome. Oh man, I love that. Great race logistics. If you guys are looking for a good fall race, I would highly recommend the Hartford Marathon and, uh, and half marathon. But I remember, you know, I'd struggled a bit going into the lead up on that race. I had a really good training block and then had a bit of tendonitis issues. So I had a kind of a, a bumpy final weeks and, you know, I really wanted to do well. It was the first marathon that I'd run since COVID and it'd been a while. And I was just so like, I just remember like standing there and just feeling nauseous, like so anxious. Like I didn't feel like I was going to throw up. I just had that feeling in the pit of my stomach. And I was like, oh my God. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Although sometimes our feelings can provoke physical reactions in us, right? There's a very, very real physical response to some of the emotions and feelings that we feel. Like literally, yes, you. it's a physical thing that you are feeling what you're feeling. I also knew that it was one, a normal part of the race day process, right? It is normal to be anxious on race morning. And I also knew that if I gave myself some grace and did not freak out about freaking out, accepted this as like, this is okay. It's okay that you feel this way. And I did some square breathing, right? And that helped a lot. I allowed me to calm myself down and I had to do it a couple times. Like it wasn't just like when it done, like I was good. And then like it came back and I was like, okay, do it again. Do it again. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. This is normal. This is a normal part of the process. Because the other thing too about anxiety is once you start experiencing anxiety, you start to get anxious about the anxiety that you're experiencing. And then it kind of snowballs into this terrible anxiety death spiral. So if you find yourself in the days or weeks before your race, experiencing extreme symptoms of anxiety, I would highly recommend one, if you need to talk to somebody professional about this, they can help you. But two, helping over the course of several months or longer if needed to desensitize yourself to that experience. Now, I think it's all very, very normal, right? Say, okay, but I still can't sleep the night before my race. That's normal. Okay. I think it's really important that we, we understand kind of the Again, the spectrum of what's normal and not normal. Is it normal to be anxious the night before a really big race and have trouble sleeping? 100%. That is 100% normal. Is it normal to have trouble, to start having trouble sleeping two weeks before your race because you are so anxious for race day? Not normal. Okay. So know the difference. Uh, There are also tools right out there kind of therapeutic tools behavior tools cognitive behavioral therapy might be very helpful um so again there'd be something you could talk to a mental health professional about but really one of the best things you can do really 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 is throw yourself into the deep end of the pool with arm floaties on Sign up for some of those local races, comfortable races where you you can sleep in your own bed in your hometown or or there you know close by and races that have absolutely zero real consequences to you or your training. And again, you don't even have to race them. You can just go an easy jog. But it is about 
helping you understand that the perceived threat, the gigantic perceived threat that is the race day experience is actually not quite as terrifying as it seems. But you have to keep showing yourself that over and over and over and over again. And it's going to be okay. You also, it can be very, very helpful in the run-up to some big races, if you are feeling a little bit anxious, to talk to people about it, especially other runners who understand. Now, some runners are going to trauma dump on you about how anxious they are, but you don't need to trauma dump on them about how anxious you are either. It can just be helpful to know that you are not alone. And if somebody is helpful, you know, managing their own symptoms of race anxiety. Hey, what are you doing? Do you, do you ever get anxious before a race? Yeah. You know, I start getting anxious a couple of days before races. Is there anything that you do that you find really helpful? Just ask, right? Somebody might have something that is going to be helpful for you to try that you haven't tried yet, or you haven't thought of. So if you are experiencing this kind of severe race day anxiety, you are not alone, but I also don't want you to feel like you are, can't do anything about it. Because there are steps that you can do, steps that you can take to make your relationship with race day less terrifying. I promise. I promise it is possible. Our final question for this week is, I see a lot of articles and content talking about low energy availability in women runners, but I'm a guy. Can I have low energy availability too? Yes, any athlete, any runner, irrespective of age or sex, can experience low energy availability or relative energy deficiency in sport. And it can also happen at kind of any level of training, whether you are a novice runner or an elite runner. Yes. And here's the thing, you know, we talk about a lot about how, you know, low energy availability and relative energy deficiency in sport and underfueling, you know, it's really prevalent among female endurance runners. Like we know this. Um, but what we also are now starting to see is that these same things, low energy availability and relative, relative energy and relative energy deficiency in sport or REDS, as I'm going to refer to it from now on, so I don't have to keep tripping over to that phrase, is likely massively underreported in male endurance athletes as well. Recently, there have been several very high-profile elite male marathoners who've come out and talked about their experience with REDS, um, one of whom is Jake Riley. Jake Riley is a, an elite American marathoner. He finished second at the 2020 Olympic marathon trials and made the team. He ran a PR of 2.10.02 at the trials. Like that's fast, right? But Jake, according to him, he's always considered himself con- as bigger, quote unquote, compared to the average pro runner. Now, obviously, if you look at a picture of somebody like him, you think, well, that's objectively not true. But when you are competing in a sport that unfortunately prioritizes aesthetics sometimes over performance, and you are seeing a lot of extraordinarily thin because of that's how they're built, right? Especially a lot of the East African runners, they're just naturally thin people. It can warp your perception of what you believe that your body needs to look like as well in order to perform at a certain level. Now, what happened to Jake is that he had started intentionally trying to lose weight in the run up to the trials. And then he kind of kept going. 
and started performing worse. And finally, he was diagnosed with REDS in March of 2022. And he's been talking about it, which I think is absolutely fantastic because we need to be talking about it for every athlete, not just women. Yes, men can absolutely get REDS and have LEA, low energy availability as well. Another example of this, he's talked about it after the fact, Ryan Hall has come out and kind of obliquely said, right, uh, in an Instagram post, I think from earlier this year, talked about how um, his attempt to try to be as thin as possible during his pro running career prematurely ended it, which I think we all know what that means, right? He wasn't eating enough and it literally ended his career. And this, he was one of the top American distance runners of his generation. He still holds the American men's half marathon record that he set in 2007 in Houston. He ran a 59.43. So yes, men absolutely can experience REDS. uh, And unfortunately, one of the hallmark symptoms of REDS when it comes to athletes who get a period, athletes who menstruate, is that your period either goes away or becomes very irregular. That's a, that's a hallmark sign of low energy availability or REDS. Now, it doesn't happen to every runner who has REDS and a period, um, but that is one of the big signs. Now, if you don't get a period, if you've never had a period, you don't have ovaries, right? That's not going to be low. I'm fine, right? But there are other signs and symptoms for uh, male athletes with REDS and what that looks like. So let's talk about what those are. So it's really important to mention that you don't have to have an eating disorder or disordered eating or even be trying to lose weight or attempting weight loss in order to have REDS or low energy availability, okay? What we do know is that a lot of underfueling is unintentional, as in you genuinely think that you're eating enough to meet your needs as a runner and you're just not, okay? So oftentimes you think, well, yeah, of course, you know, he was, he got reds, like he was, he was restricting too much. He was trying to lose weight. But a lot of times, a lot of times the underfeeling is 100% unintentional. Some of the biggest signs of reds, kind of the earliest signs is trouble sleeping and mood disorders, mood shifts, mood disturbances, right? So if you are suddenly, you know, you've never really had insomnia before, but now you have it, or you're waking up at two o'clock in the morning, especially if you're hungry and you're just kind of like wide awake and it happens not like, not all the time, but like not infrequently, like that didn't really happen before. Why is it happening now? Um, or you are, have that tired, but wired feeling like you are tired, but you can't fall asleep. Like you can't turn off your brain that those are signs, right? You may not be fueling enough mood shifts, right? You're cranky, you're irritable, you're sad, you're down. You're like, really like got a kind of bummer outlook on life when that's really not who you are. That is a pretty big flag, right? So trouble sleeping and mood changes especially if this is also happening in conjunction with increasing volume in your training. So you're running more and now you're not sleeping as well and your mood kind of sucks all the time, right? Whoops, hold on, waving some flags here, right? Another issue could be you're getting sick all the time. Uh, So that obviously is not gonna be for everybody, uh, especially now in our kind of post COVID age where not everybody is going out as much anymore. So as also you can get sick all the time, even without reds, like if your kid, again, talking about that, my kid's bringing home every illness under the sun every week, right? That could just be part of that. Um, 
Other issues, obviously your performance is going in the wrong direction uh, and irrespective of like everything kind of feels like it sucks. Not just like, oh yeah, my volume's climbing and my fatigue is a little bit high and my easy runs are really easy, you know, but my workouts still feel pretty good. You know, it's like, no, everything's a little bit harder than it should be. And maybe also you're starting to kind of not run as fast as you were running in workouts or in races. And that is, unfortunately, sometimes it takes a couple cycles of that to happen, which it sucks because all you're just doing is kind of sliding down the ladder of like, uh-oh. Uh, also frequent injuries, especially bone stress injuries, like that is an absolutely gigantic red flag. Other issues in men specifically, we talk about, yeah, in women, we see a lot of those hormonal changes when it comes to estrogen, uh, bone density loss. Well, in men, what can happen is that, yeah, your hormones are also going to be messed with. So your libido is going to go bye-bye, right? Uh, in women, that is no more periods. In men, that is the inability or struggle to maintain an erection, right? Your sex drive is like gone for no reason whatsoever. Um, alterations in how your thyroid hormones are functioning can affect your kind of overall energy levels and also bone health, right? Stress fractures, low bone density. So yes, there are a lot of issues that men can have that can signal low energy availability or reds. And then another one that I see, I'm not a dietitian, but I do see this a lot, kind of the first thing where, hey, are you feeling enough? GI issues, including bloating or constipation, because one of the hallmarks of not eating enough is gastrointestinal problems. So the problem here is that when you, and you've probably heard other dietitians on this show say this, is that if you are experiencing GI problems, you're like, uh oh, well, I got to cut something out because something's not agreeing with me, right? So then actually you're kind of narrowing down the list of foods that you will eat and it makes more likely that you're going to underfuel. That's a problem too. So paradoxically, yes, if you are experiencing GI issues, you might need to eat more. This is when working with a dietitian is going to be really helpful. And also finally, if you've had blood work done and you are deficient or low in things like vitamin D, iron, B12, even if nothing has changed, like it was fine and now it's low and nothing has changed, like you're eating the same stuff, you're maybe you're even taking supplements and it's still low, that's definitely a problem. That could absolutely be a sign that something is not functioning correctly in your body and that would definitely be something where an athlete came to me with these and said, like, you know, it's probably a good idea if you talk to a sports dietitian about this and have them take a look at all of this and just make sure that you're eating enough. Because a fueled body is a fast body, right? And fast is relative, right? But you do want to perform at your best, hopefully, assuming that's what we're doing all of this. And in order to do that, you need enough fuel. So yes, Men absolutely can experience low energy availability. They can experience reds and understanding the signs and symptoms of that is really, really, really important. So I'm glad you asked. All right. Thank you guys so much for being here today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I am very much looking forward to welcoming guests back onto the show, starting with next week's episode and into the fall. And don't forget, I am here to help you prep for that raise day if you need some help. So I hope to see some of you soon. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time.
This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.